have so many dreams to be mended when tomorrow comes. So many cares to be ended when tomorrow comes. Welcome to episode 12 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. Today I'm looking at Mandalay from 1934, starring Kay Francis and directed by Michael Curtiz. This is a spoiler-free episode. Viewers see a wide variety of male betrayal and women's pictures. Joan Crawford jilted on her wedding day when her fiancé ran off with another woman and left her with only a few coins in her pocket and Sadie McKee. Or Jean Harlow in Hold Your Man, who does time for Clark Gable's crime. Or Sylvia Sidney, whose character was murdered to hush up a love child in An American Tragedy. Or Charles Boyer, who marries Ingrid Bergman so he can steal her aunt's jewels and gaslight and drives her crazy in the process. Or when Joan Crawford has her restaurant franchise stolen from her in Mildred Pierce. I could go on and on. But none of them match the singular horror that results from Ricardo Cortez's treachery in Mandalay when he hands Kay Francis over to a pimp to settle his debts. This Warner Brothers picture showed women how to cope if the worst happened. What do you do when your low-down boyfriend sells you into prostitution? In the first bit of dialogue, as Tony, Ricardo Cortez tells Nick, played by Warner Oland, that he's put him in a tight spot. Nick repeats the complaint about a tight spot. Once you've seen this film more than once, their reference to spot soon echoes into the plot of the film. We know as soon as Kay Francis's character Tanya confides that life isn't worth living before she met Ricardo Cortez, that she will soon have the opportunity to change her mind. She soon learns that if a man can make life worth living, he can also make it a living hell. Tanya tells him, life didn't mean anything to me before I met you. Tony replies, there's nothing more uncertain than the life of a man like me. He stresses how much of a scapegrace he is by asking her to promise, no matter what happens, keep your chin up. He tells her to keep her chin up more than once in the picture, which amounts to the least helpful advice he or anyone else could offer. Tony wants to take her into Rangoon to celebrate and tells her to put on a white dress he loves with the flowers on it. Ricardo Cortez has trouble folded into the crease of his brow and a sideways smile. One reviewer, when it was released, referred to him as the cinema's magnificent heel, which Dan Van Ness borrowed for his biography, Magnificent Heel, The Life and Films of Ricardo Cortez, a great page turner. That about nails him as Tony. Cortez could charm the blue from your jeans, a quality that proves more dangerous than an obvious thug like, say, Wally Beery. Because viewers and Tanya never see it coming. He looks like a good guy. He sounds like a good guy, but he's 100% rotten. Tony ferries Tanya to all the Rangoon night spots. There's that word again. Encouraging her to neck champagne everywhere they go. They end the night at Nick's place, even though she objects and says that she doesn't like the club owner and has had enough to drink. Inside the club, Tanya looks at all the scantily clad young women and asks Tony about them. All these girls, what are they? Just like cafe girls anywhere. Oh, you mean, I mean that exactly, my dear. Their exchange makes it clear that Nick runs a brothel. While Tanya sings and plays the piano, entertaining men with slicked hair, scarred faces, and rape in their eyes, Tony and Nick handle business, an exchange of Tanya for a shipment of guns. 
Tony gets ready to leg it when Nick stops him and insists that he take the time to write a note so that Tanya won't think he came to harm. Tony dashes off the note. He signs it by reminding her to keep her chin up. Tanya, incredulous as the viewers, can't believe that this is her fate, her new home. Nick tells her that she could scream for three weeks and nobody would hear her. No one is going to come to her aid. For the next scene, we see that Tanya's first tactic reverts to sulking in bed on a hunger strike. But when the house madam, played by Raffaella Otiano, who's known as the Countess, enters a room, she doesn't use force to coerce Tanya. Instead, she gives advice that virtually repeats the scene between Barbara Stanwyck and the old Nietzsche enthusiast Cobbler and Babyface from the previous year. Warner's had a penchant for recycling solid tropes. The Countess perhaps outstrips the old Cobbler because she offers more explanation and rationale to support her recommendation. The shoemaker had told Stanwyck's sex worker to be smart and use men to get the things that she wants. The Countess has the same counsel, but she elaborates so that it serves as a lifeline to the distraught woman held as a sex captive. Good morning, Tanya. Still on hunger strike? You're making a fool of yourself. If I had your beauty and my experience, hmm, what I could do. Well, I don't suppose it's any use in my telling you. You'll have to find out for yourself. But if you've got any sense, you'll make the best of it. You'll go on living. And before you get through, you'll find out that it's easier to make men do what you want them to than it is to fall in love and have them make a fool of you. Anyway, you're pretty enough to go a long way if you use your head. You'd like to get away from here, wouldn't you? Well, make these thick-headed goats do it for you. Use them for everything they're worth. And then you can laugh at them just like one of them is laughing at you now. It's no use lying there worrying like this. It doesn't get you anywhere. All you get out of it is a headache. And what can you do? Make the most of it. Tanya, like Lily Powers, lights a cigarette and agrees. I think you're right. Thanks. Kay Francis began the scene looking listless and maybe even drugged with opium, narcotized into a somnambulant state in protest of being held against her will. The Countess offers her the only practical approach to the situation, to keep her head and use men to escape. Tanya sits up in bed when she accepts the plan and suddenly all the light flashes back into her eyes as she begins to plan. Her lacquered hair lends strength to her resolve. It stands out against the sheer gauze and soft satin patina of the boudoir. Kay's severe center partner hair emphasizes her thoughtful and intelligent character. No one with hair that looks like an art deco sculpture could be a victim for long. When Tanya next appears, it's at the top of the stairs in the club. She looks down from her superior advantage and surveys the men below with an imperious air of a queen. Curtiz pans the camera across the lust-sick faces of the men, who all but drool at the sight of Kay's Tanya looking like she's more potent than a silver bullet. She wears a gown that looks like molten silver. It looks like it's moving over her marble-white skin when she's completely motionless. She looks like she belongs in a temple with offerings at her feet. Kay Francis seems most striking in the picture when she inhabits an eerie stillness. She doesn't appear to move, other than her dark eyes which blaze like hot coal with indignation. She may have been dropped into a vortex of chaos, but her exterior calm reminds viewers that she keeps herself in reserve. 
She stays in her own perfectly coiffed, exquisitely dressed bubble and watches the world burn. One of the slack-jawed men says something about her new name, which is Spot White. The man sitting next to him retorts that she should be called Spot Cash. Just like Tony noted of himself in the opening scene, Kay Francis is indeed in a tight spot. And now she's not pure by the standards of her day. She's been tarnished. She's blighted by the position men have forced her into. She can either settle in the gutter or claw her way out. She chooses the latter. In the supreme economy of Warner's pre-code pacing, Curtiz adds a bit of K-dub singing when tomorrow comes at the piano, a song that relays her belief in being carried out of this hellhole someday. Then Curtis switches to a montage of champagne glasses being filled, drinking, dancing, and it sets the tone for the dizzying rhythm of the nightclub. In the next scene, we see Spot White on her graduation day, when she has earned her degree according to the logic that the Countess set out when she first took up residence in Nick's brothel. She made her debut in a silver gown that was a showstopper, but the gown she wears to meet the customs official who plans to deport her is next level and sartorial game. She's dressed in all white, as she will be for most of the picture. She looks like a grand lady dressed for high tea with monarchs, rather than to just be deported in a grubby office by a dingy officer. When they go low, Kay goes high. Equipped with a wide-brimmed hat, immaculate white gown, and gigantic plume fan, Kay swans into the customs office like she has never known a speck of lint, grease, or wrinkle in her life. Women rarely had guns to brandish in the pre-codes, but Tanya doesn't need one. She flings the massive fan out with as much panache as a gunslinger who twirls his sidearms. Then she walks over to his desk and leans on the arm of the chair in front so she can maintain a higher and more dominant stance over the pencil pusher behind the desk. When she finished folding up the fan with one flick, she sweeps it across the seat at the chair she's not sitting on. The gesture is a power move. It says the filthy seat isn't worthy to receive her precious bottom. The drape of her limbs tells the officer, played by Reginald Owen, that she's humoring him with her presence. She's unfazed when he says that she's a menace to the colony. He holds her responsible for the crimes committed by soldiers who stole because of her and were court-martialed as a result. The officer tells her that he's deporting her. Instead of an ace in her sleeve, Tanya presents a garter pinned with six medals. He demands to know how she came to possess his medals. He doesn't recognize her as spot white, perhaps because she's dressed for a garden party rather than an orgy. He doesn't see past her ensemble. Tanya informs the colonel that he gave her the medals and offers to restore them to his possession in exchange for 10,000 rupees. When he objects to the blackmail, she responds reasonably that 10,000 rupees isn't a bad price for not being deported. As the countess advised, she let men pay her way out of Rangoon. Once she boards the steamboat bound for the cool green hills of Mandalay, viewers wait for the inevitable return of Tony. He turns up like a bad penny always does. Tony joins the ship. He enters the dining room and orders a beer and a curry, just like any punter who spells trouble. And he's whining, mewling that nothing has gone right for him since he lost her. 
The whole time he tries to wheedle himself back in her favor, I was searching the set for weapons. Was the broken glass still on the floor so she could shank him? Really, this guy was begging to be stabbed. He starts pawing Tanya and wants to reconcile. When he questions why she's traveling under the name Marjorie Lang, she replies, Under that name, I have no market value. Tony lacks any remorse. He was in a tight spot. What could he do? I won't ruin the ending for you. Let me just assure you that he gets his comeuppance. Ruth Donnelly plays a rube from Kansas who reads the audience mind and quips, You sure can wear clothes, when Kay displays yet another pristine outfit. Kay sports some of Ori Kelly's best designs. In his memoir, Women I've Undressed, Ori Kelly wrote about how he distinguished himself from the other designers in Hollywood. Adrian used elaborate embroidery on Garbo, Shearer, and Crawford, while Banton dressed Colbert and Lombard in all-over beaded gowns. I decided that the only way to be different was to avoid glitter. Remembering my motto, without a spangle, I made up my mind not to use a single bead or spangle. Starting with Kay Francis, I designed simple unadorned evening gowns, black velvet, white, beige, and black chiffon or crepe. I introduced what was the forerunner of the shirtmaker dress for evening. Taking the daytime sport lines with kick pleats, I dropped those to the ground using tailored arrowheads where the inverted pleats met. At first, only those with sensitive tastes were impressed. Luckily, Kay was the essence of good taste. Throughout Mandalay, the dominant color for Kay's Tanya is white, white, white. It suits the tropical climate as well as the character's desire to shed the judgments about how she earned a living. I've never seen a white wardrobe look more interesting. I could stare at the broderie anglaise collar and wooden buttons on the white linen frock she wears when Tony joins the ship all day long. It looks so crisp and fresh against a muggy climate. The production's opening scenes were shot on location in Stockton along the San Joaquin River in November when temperatures were intolerably cold. Dressed in summer clothes and sheer fabrics, the cast was chilled to the bone, especially Kay, who first appears in an off-the-shoulder blouse and sarong. In Kay Francis' I Can't Wait to Be Forgotten, her life on film and stage, Scott O'Brien includes a snippet from a reporter on the interior set one day. I gazed in dismay at the flight of steps that rose steeply to a balcony. The steps were set at uneven intervals, which is an old oriental custom I learned and they looked pretty tough going if a person had to navigate them in a hurry. A call for lights and quiet, and Kay was back on the set again to do her tripping scene down the jerry-built stairway, and I'm here to tell you it was a real trip. Hollywood's best-dressed actress started down the steps, looking languidly towards the dance floor. One heel got caught in the train of her gown, and down she came, bumpity-bump-bump, and pride goeth before the fall. Blank, said Miss Francis. Director, cameraman, assistants, extras, dancers, everyone, even I, rushed forward to help her. Hurt, director Curtiz asked solicitously. What do you think? Kay groaned, rubbing a sore spot. She really was considerably bruised, but as she remarked to me, the bruises aren't where they show. Kay's fall didn't make it into the final cut, which makes you wonder how many other scenes were deleted, whether they were designed at her expense as this one was, or else depicted more unsavory events in the brothel. 
Warner executives were pleased with the film when it was finished, and it became a big hit. But during production, the producer, Hal Wallace, sent Curtiz a curt memo that reminds us how little power directors had even during the pre-code period. The producer was the boss, who called the shots and kept the director on schedule with shooting the script as it was. All changes to the script had to meet with approval by studio executives. Alan K. Rhodes' biography of Michael Curtiz includes the memo Hal Wallace wrote to the director. Your stuff is beautiful, and I don't want to start limiting you and restricting you to shooting the actual script, as you are doing such a good job on the whole. However, when you show Kay Francis in the bathtub with Cortez in the shot, and a close-up of Kay Francis in the tub, and show her stepping out of the tub and going into Cortez's arms, then you get me to the point where I'm going to have to tell you to stick to the script and not do anything else. For God's sake, Mike, you have been in pictures long enough to know it's impossible to show a man and a woman who are not married in a scene of this kind. The situation in itself is censorable enough with Cortez and Francis living together. It is impossible to put it in this picture, so why the hell do you shoot it and make it necessary to go back and make retakes or cut the scene so the charm has gone out of it? I'm going to have to cut the scene now with Cortez sticking his head in the hatchway and a close-up of Kay Francis coming into a two-shot with the audience ever seeing her on the other side of the room, and this is only because you do such goddamn silly things. In 1936, the Production Code Authority, under the leadership of uptight Joseph Breen, rescinded approval for Mandalay, and so it languished in the studio's vaults for decades. You can watch Mandalay for free online at that secret Russian website I told you about for the third episode. The site has ok.ru in the URL. You can Google it. Kay Francis was the queen of Warner Brothers before Betty Davis was billed above the title. Her pictures made a fortune for the studio, yet she was treated more shabbily by Warners than probably any other player they had under contract. Warner Brothers manipulated her with threats about scandal from her affairs with women. Although she was promised the lead in Tovarich from 1937, co-starring Charles Boyer and directed by Anatole Lidvak, both fresh off their critical success of Meyerling, they gave the part to Claudette Colbert and kept the lousy scripts for Kay. Then Warners gave her demeaning tasks, hoping she would quit. I'll leave you with an excerpt about Warners that put Kay through the ringer in an excerpt from O'Brien's biography, I Can't Wait to Be Forgotten. Kay's salary for 1937 topped producer Hal Wallace's and made her Hollywood's highest paid female star. According to the public and theater managers, she deserved it. Fawcett Publications polled thousands of readers over several weeks in 1937 in a screen popularity poll. Kay and Errol Flynn were the only two Warner stars who made the top 20. In January 1938, Kay also made the top 15 honor stars in a popularity poll among British theater magazines. Hollywood Citizen News mentioned, The stars who rate in the upper brackets of the international poll are the real moneymakers for Hollywood producers, who count upon 40% of their revenue coming from foreign countries, in which the British Empire is the dominant contributor. In spite of Kay's success in the movie polls, Warner Brothers seemed bent on disposing of her services. After Kay's court case, an attempted final financial offer of 50% settlement on her remaining 18-month contract 
which she rejected, Jack Warner focused on getting her to break her pact with the studio and force her to quit. The studio announced that Kay would finish out her contract and be programmers. James Robert Parrish later commented that not since MGM and John Gilbert had a studio so garishly given a former star the kiss of death. The announcement made Kay even more determined to wring every cent out of her remaining 5250 weekly salary. Even if they put me in a bathing suit, fumed Kay, and had me walk up and down Hollywood Boulevard. Instead of doing that, Warners insisted she compromise herself and her talent for something just as demeaning. Screenwriter Stuart Jerome, who worked at Warners during Kay's ego-withering departure, referred to her ordeal as one of the more sordid chapters in our history. Her next assignment, she was notified, would be to assist a number of young hopefuls who were to be screen-tested for stock contracts. It was unthinkable to use high-salaried actors, let alone stars, for the embarrassing task of playing second fiddle to raw newcomers. But her refusal would have resulted in an immediate suspension. Swallowing her pride and pocketing her paycheck, for the next six days she reported to the stage to feed lines to the youngsters, the camera shooting over her shoulder. Uncomplainingly, she spent her days sitting on the sidelines, knitting and drinking gin from a silver flask, And we wondered if, like Dickens, Madame Defarge, she was inscribing into her Afghan the names on her hate list. An old-timer, Hobart Bosworth, a star in the silence, commiserating about the way she was being treated, concluded that she was still better off than the stars of his day. Back then, he recalled, if you offended any of the moguls, they could order you to clean out the toilets. Our contracts only stipulated we were hired for services rendered. Kay's lucky that the Screen Actors Guild made them change that clause to for acting services. Otherwise, they could force a showdown by ordering her to report to, say, the commissary as a waitress. To which another old-timer who had worked with her commented, knowing Frances, she would not only report, but she would also keep the tips right down to the last goddamn dime. So what was the reaction of Kay's co-workers about her court ordeal? Within the studio, sympathy was mostly for Francis, wrote Stuart Jerome. It was necessarily muted sympathy except for two vocal champions. Openly vociferous, Betty Davis, sometimes referred to as the fourth Warner brother, and James Cagney, who spent breaks in his dressing room reading law books, let it be known that they considered the studio's behavior despicable. Deliberately going over Jack Warner's head, they sought an audience with Harry M. Warner, who as president had the power to override any decisions he disapproved of. Harry was supposedly sympathetic, but said that since all production matters were under Jack's jurisdiction, he was unable to interfere. However, a series of freshly typed copies of memos, all strictly confidential, disclosed that Harry had been the instigator of the campaign against Kay Francis. Jack Warner inexcusably had carried out the orders. Screenwriter Wilson Meisner, who supplied many a bright remark for One Way Passage, best summed it up about working for Jack and Harry when he said, Working for Warner Brothers is like trying to fuck a porcupine. It's one prick against a hundred. Stuart Jerome also emphasized that Kay's real nemesis was Harry M. Warner, something few were aware of. Whereas Jack's studio reputation was that of a bastard, Harry's was seen as the benevolent good guy. But we wondered, was that really so? 
Many of the firing and suspensions were ordered by HM, even though it was Jack who carried them out. Through the hiring of private detectives, Harry had acquired some particularly gamey evidence of sexual misdeeds on the part of some of our top talent. He instructed his brother to use this evidence whenever necessary to keep them in line. It was no wonder that our studio was known in the industry as the Burbank branch of San Quentin. Regardless of whether if any evidence was being held against her, Kay was determined to get every penny coming to her at the cost of putting up with Jack and Harry Warner's enforced indignities for the next two years. Kay wasn't a vociferous fighter like Cagney or Davis. It wasn't her nature to go for the jugular. Instead, she left behind her legacy as the glamorous martyr of Warner Brothers Studios. Oddly enough, it was her attitude that set a precedent for many others. Columnist Bob Thomas wrote, If Jack Warner's abuse of Kay Francis was designed to make other stars compliant to his will, he failed. They recognized that the studio's treatment of Francis would befall themselves as their careers ran down. They resolved to get what they could while they could. During Kay's screen test marathon, the studio moved her belongings from her plush dressing room under the pretext it was going to be redecorated. It was, for newcomer John Garfield, who also rewarded himself by stealing silk shirts from the wardrobe department. Kay knew better than to complain and adjusted to the stark new reality of one room in the featured player's dressing room building. From her cubbyhole on the lot, she reported to work for the previously announced film assignment aptly titled Return from Limbo. The casting for the film was an uncomfortable and strange mix. Pat O'Brien's bravado and abrasive edge didn't gel with Kay's graceful sophistication. Still, O'Brien considered playing opposite Kay to be a real coup. Years later, O'Brien recalled, One of the most glamorous leading ladies I played opposite was Kay Francis. Not only was she a big, dark, beautiful creature, she was endowed with a wonderful sense of humor. I saw Kay a few years ago when I was playing in Falmouth, Massachusetts. She and Eloise, Mrs. O'Brien, and I dined together, and I reminded her of how completely uninhibited she was. Whenever you played love scenes, O'Brien told Kay, you always took off your shoes. Kay looked the stocky actor in the eye and quipped, I was taller than most of the men I played with. Thanks very much for joining me. Come back next time when I'm talking about Ginger Rogers and Lady in the Dark from 1944. Thanks very much.